Good evening, and this is Peter Coleman, and I am a professor of uh, psychology and education at the Earth Institute and Teachers College, and I uh, have the pleasure of introducing my guest this evening, who is Jackie Klopp. Jackie is an associate research scholar at the Center for Sustainable Urban Development at the Earth Institute and uh, at Columbia, and um, works uh, um, within the context of that center on issues around violence and violence prevention, has worked uh, in Kenya, worked with internally displaced people. Um, so Jackie, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Peter. So um, this is a show about uh, all things peace, conflict, and violence around Columbia University. And um, so we, uh, in looking at your work, became really interested in how some of what you do has an impact on violence prevention. Um, so um, why don't you tell me just a little bit about, uh, generally about your work and then how you got into work in violence in Kenya. Okay, well, quite a while back, I was a teacher in Kenya after graduating from college, and I became very fascinated by the country and made a lot of close friendships over the two years I was there. Later, I went back to do research for my master's and PhD, focused on the violence that started to emerge in Kenya in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And through that research, I met a lot of incredible people, people who'd suffered tremendous trauma, violence. They'd lost people. They've lost uh, limbs, their health, land, jobs, friends, um, and yet were very resilient. and. Uh, their stories really motivated me to work a lot more on questions of internal displacement. So that's when people are forced to move uh, because of violence um, and sometimes other things within their own country. So they're like refugees in their own country. Mm. So I know that uh, um, a couple of election cycles back when the violence really spiked in Kenya, it, it, it surprised the international community. There was a feeling that Kenya was sort of the representative democ stable democracy and economy on the continent, and yet there were, were these um, spikes of violence that would come around the election. Can you give us a little context as to what, uh, what, what the conflict is about and, and why does it spike around elections? Sure. Kenya is a country that had hosted a lot of refugees and did have a reputation for being very stable for a long time. So people were surprised that around uh, October 1991, we started to see some really serious violence that got much worse during the first multi-party election in 1992. Part of my PhD research was trying to understand why we saw that violence emerging just when Kenya was becoming more like a democracy. And I argued that from my perspective and, and my fieldwork that it seemed like the government that had been in power since independence, the, had the, the, the political party that had been in power. Um, Kenya has only had a handful of presidents, um, and for the bulk of the time under the Liberation Party, the Kenya African National Union. They really did everything in their power to stay in power <laughs> um, when new uh, parties started to emerge. And so for the first two election cycles, we saw what was really state-instigated violence. And one dynamic that's really interest interesting but horrific really was that we saw something 
that I would call gerrymandering by displacement. Mm -hmm. So politicians knowing that certain people will not vote for them because of their political party or ethnic affiliation, and then deliberately instigating violence to evict them prior to the election to ensure that they won't vote. Um, so we saw a lot of this kind of manipulation. But after many years of this violence, of course, we get a dynamic where you have young people who have been armed by politicians and start to take a life on of their own. Um, and so um, in the 2007 election, uh, this violence was particularly vehement, in part because we saw these militias on both sides um, getting involved. So it became much more like a civil war dynamic. And so are there tribal or ethnic roots to the violence? I like to say in many ways there are deep colonial roots to the violence. Um, Kenya was a British colony and a particularly brutal one. So a lot of the institutions that were set up were set up really to repress um, and for the, the central state to be able to manipulate. And so it was within that colonial context also that people were put into native reserves or, or designated as kind of ethnicities or tribes mm -hmm. and very deliberately often played against each other. And that politics really uh, persisted uh, into the post-colonial period. So a lot of the instruments that the African politicians used were the same, and even the mentality was the same. Um, but the truth is that once you've had so much violence that's based on, um, on an ideology of ethnicity, uh, then people start to think in those categories, and it becomes self-perpetuating. Uh, sure. Children grow up in those conditions, and that's how they start to see the world. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so you did your dissertation on the conflict there, and then you came back and uh, joined Columbia when? In 2003? Is that right? I started teaching some classes as early as 2001, okay. so <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, almost, uh, I guess, in a Columbia elder. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, so tell me a little bit. So what, um, at what point did your work bring you back? to Kenya and in what capacity? Well, I, one thing that happened was when I was doing my research, I met so many incredible people and I, who had actually overcome that kind of hatred, including one very special person named Kefa Mageni. He was a victim. His father was murdered. Uh, he was displaced from his farm and he became my research assistant. But it became really hard for me to do the research with, without feeling like uh, I needed to do something more. And so together with Kefa, we and another uh, a, a network of like-minded uh, Kenyans, uh, we built a small NGO to really support um, more uh, advocacy for the people who have been affected by the violence and displaced. And so that work, which is, I've been writing a lot about it in different venues, um, but that work has been my passion. So I find every opportunity through my work in Kenya, uh, including some of the other work I do, to continue to, to foster and nurture that organization and the work that it does. 
So um, give us a sense of the work. So you work with what you would call internally displaced peoples, right? Yes. In Kenya, they have a network. And what's really beautiful about the network is that it's national. So as some politicians try to, again, even ethnicize that issue of people being displaced, saying it really is affecting one community or another community, um, and distributing benefits based on that, that the network is a, is made up of people across the country, of all ethnicities. Um, and so they're really working to improve the rule of law and to do reconciliation so that no one has to go through displacement in their country um, again. And so that network is what our little NGO tries to support. And the NGO is called the Internal Displacement um, Advocacy uh, and Research Network. Is there a website of some type that people could go to get information? That's an interesting story because um, we did have uh, a, a website. Um, and most recently, it got hacked. And we believe it got hacked probably by some uh, political forces maybe aligned with the government. Because, uh, as some people may know, the uh, president of Kenya um, and his deputy are both in front of the International Criminal Court um, for uh, possible crimes against humanity during the last election. 2007. And so a number of the internally displaced people, including some that we work with, have been victims in that election. And so they're seen perhaps as linked to the ICC. So our website has been hacked as has a number of websites, actually, mm -hmm. of civil society organizations in Kenya. Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned in your comments about the work of uh, the NGO uh, that you work, they support work and reconciliation um, I presume that's between the, 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 the conflicted parties. And can you talk a little bit about what that entails, how they go about that? Well, one thing that they do is, well, is part of just working together as internally displaced people in a network is really important. It demonstrates to people that, in fact, everybody gets affected by this violence and every community needs assistance and support. So just by working together, they're a really powerful example. Many of the people in the network are also leaders in their own communities in terms of creating dialogue. Um, but the other thing they're trying to do now is also they have a case against the government for the failure to protect citizens. Mm. Um, and the, I, the internally displaced people who are testifying come from different parts of the country. So for them, they're really pushing for a reform agenda um, that's important for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I think the example of what they do is very powerful. That's a great question. One thing that the government, or at least the highest level, is very sensitive um, to is any reference to the International Criminal Court. So we did have some documents and references to that those ongoing cases on our website. 
Um, it's important to note that a lot of internally displaced people do not take an active position on whether it's a good idea or a bad idea um, to have these ongoing cases um, because you, they are very, very vulnerable. Um, and also, it's not clear to them that these international cases can solve their local problems. However, uh, some of the other things that may uh, draw attention uh, are the ongoing case against the government, although it's not against any particular individual politician, it's against the state. Um, the, the other possibility is that not long ago, the, the president, Uhuru Kenyatta, said that he had settled all the internally displaced people, that there are no more internally displaced people from the violence in 2007, 2008. And um, we assisted the IDP network, the network of the displaced, to write a letter to the president saying that that's really not the case, that we can prove that there are people who are have not yet been assisted, and there are fairly large numbers of people. Because they also want to erase history. They want, because of their roles in it, they want forgetting. Um, and these displaced people often remind them that <laughs> the violence happened <laughs> and reminds the, the public that the violence happened. I think that this time around, it's been too hard because of all the international attention. But in the 1992 election and the 1997 election, where there was very serious violence, um, and some of the people who have been involved in the 2007 violence were involved in that violence too, um, particularly the deputy um, president. He so that you know that they were able to really suppress. But this time around, with all the international tension, it's very hard. Unfortunately, uh, it's fairly well documented that witnesses to the ICC cases have been murdered uh, or serious pressure uh, put on them. Uh, you know, their families threatened or, you know, they've been threatened. Um, and because people have been killed, those are very credible threats. And so, in fact, it's actually weakening the case against the president. Jackie, can I ask you um, a little bit about the the NGO that you that you help found and work with? Um, what have you seen a positive impact of this group on either the mitigation of violence or the transition out of IDP status? Actually, what, let's define the difference between internally displaced and, and and refugees. Is it is it just a matter of location where they end up? Well, location really matters. Uh, if you cross an international border, then within international law, you have certain rights as a refugee that are very well enshrined in law. It doesn't mean that you actually get that protection, I should say. Mm. However, um, for an internally displaced person, you're still under the jurisdiction of the government uh, of your, your country. and. Very often, it's that very government that is responsible for your displacement. Um, there have been very serious attempts to create guiding principles and principles in international law to try to protect these populations. Um, and also, if the crimes against them get so egregious, pe there is a philosophy 
emerging in international law an ideal of a responsibility to protect, so a responsibility to actually intervene. Um, but generally, uh, internally displaced people are stuck within their own borders, um, often in very precarious situations. So it presents a, a different kind of problem, um, although sometimes the actual uh, anguish and difficulties that people face can be the same between a refugee and a displaced person. And actually, a lot of displaced people in Kenya say, I'm a refugee in my own country. That's how it feels. I've been kind of abandoned and and there are, are there obstacles to access to aid unlike refugees I mean is, is there more institutional support uh, humanitarian support for refugees than IDPs because of the status difference I think so and also I think uh, yeah because they're still seen as the responsibility of the state so in Kenya there was a burst of support right after the election but then very little follow through, um, you know, the, the humanitarian community kind of loses interest and it's seen as a humanitarian issue when it's actually a much bigger issue around human rights um, and the, you know, democracy and state reform. Uh, but then when people start working on those issues, they forget the internally displaced. They're mm -hmm. often very marginalized. And that's why, after watching this for a long time, we decided we needed a civil society organization that works specifically with the displaced and for them, um, and to keep them in, in, in the process of, of discussing change in human rights and democracy. And so what kind of impact have you, have you begun to see for, uh, um, of, of the NGO on that problem? Well, one thing we've been trying to do is we're differentiating ourselves from a humanitarian organization, although we end up doing a lot of sort of informal psychosocial support and just, you know, and, and, and uh, engagement with, with people's problems. But our, our primary goal is to really uh, collect really good information and to be able to push the government, both at the level of its programs and its policy and its laws. And so we actually have had success at that level. And I do have to give the Kenyan government more credit in that there are people within the bureaucracy um, who have been serious about these issues. And for the first time after 2007, 2008, we saw some real programs. Now, they weren't done well enough, but it was a recognition. And, and the government very recently had also passed um, a piece of law that has internalized the guiding principles on internal displacement. Um, and that was a major recognition that there's a big problem in the country. So, and, and our small organization, IDPAC, has been um, involved in those processes. Mm. So um, uh, moving forward, uh, certainly around the next uh, set of elections, is there optimism that the violence is unlikely to repeat? Have there been policies put in place that you think might mitigate, check that? Or, or are there concerns that the same will repeat itself? I think there are serious concerns that the violence might repeat itself. Sadly, I think these stem from the fact that the people who are in power uh, are people who have been linked to the violence. Right now, they're in a coalition of impunity. So 
the president's party and the deputy president's party were on different factions of the violence in 2007, 2008. Right now they have a pact. Um, you know, but that's not a stable basis for peace. And um, I think there's been tremendous work that has been done on the ground by the media, by civil society organizations. Um, and the last election, which I observed in 2013, people were absolutely terrified that the violence would continue, which meant that people really had a sense that they just did not want to see this again. So from that perspective, there has been progress, but still the power remains within these very violent factions. Um, and so if their coalition falls apart or the something, you know, depending on what happens at the ICC, there's still tremendous potential for violence. So we should be very vigilant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Jackie, can you talk a little bit about, uh, so obviously you've become very close to this issue, to this place. What is it like for you as a Westerner to observe the violence, participate directly, intimately in this? Is it um, unsettling for you? Is it? Uh, can you just tell us something about your experience? Well, it's deeply distressing, of course. And, you know, I also realize one thing that differentiates me from my Kenyan friends and colleagues is that I have protection in a way um, you know, I can leave the country. I'm not tied there. Um, and it's absolutely heart-wrenching, uh, you know, to, for example, 2007, 2008, to be, I was not in the country at that time, um, but I had been there just before and I went back right after, you know, to be on the phone when people were in, the, in serious danger, uh, you know, to the point where, you know, some of my close colleagues, I, you know, we had to bribe the police to get them out and their villages out because they were surrounded. I mean, it's heart-wrenching. It's absolutely heart-wrenching. And I think the thing that's been horrendous for me is to have seen the country go from a peaceful place where people might have had some ethnic stereotypes and, and you know, some issues, but no one would ever dream of doing, picking up, uh, you know, a knife and killing their neighbor to what we saw, especially 2007, 2008, um, it, it, you know, it's, I, I don't, it's just so, it's, it's so deeply upsetting. Um, and then this last election was, was, was difficult to be a, a Westerner in particular because the uh, Kenyatta Ruto campaign, um, was very anti-Western because of the ICC case, which was bringing them together. And so it was very silencing. Uh, you felt like, okay, you really should kind of <laughs> watch your wording. And I think they successfully bullied even the embassies. Um, and it was very, it was interesting because for the first time, I really felt like that aggression and that violence was targeted towards me personally as well mm -hmm. and to feel what that meant in terms of not being able to talk freely. Um, I think we've gone out of that phase in Kenya now because I think a lot of the realities are setting in. And that, it wasn't just coming from above. There were a lot of supporters who were, uh, you know, really accepting that. And so 
uh, you know, I was observing in an area that was very heavily um, pro-Kenyatta. And I remember the American observer, one of the American observers was actually really nervous because of the kind of rhetoric that was being, um, you know, coming out of, out of the top. And, so uh, what kind of rhetoric was coming out of the top? Um, well, that Westerners were imperialists. Um, that, oh, this is another, another piece of rhetoric that was so dangerous, particularly for my Kenyan colleagues, but also those of us who support Kenyan civil society from outside is that civil society was evil society. So all those um, NGOs who were working for peace or for, um, you know, improvement of the slums or, uh, you know, or, you know, human rights more generally, you know, they were considered evil because they were being funded by the outside for a Western imperialist agenda. So do you have um, hopes for um, the future? Do you see positive elements in amidst this sort of tentative state? Yeah, there are a lot of positive elements. Um, I think the last peaceful election, even though it had a lot of problems, at least has given people more space. Um, and I think Kenyans have also achieved uh, remarkable progress through their new constitution, which is very progressive. They they fought very hard for that, and people died for that. And that came out of also the post-election violence, because there was such a momentum then to say something had to change structurally. Um, and that's a very powerful document and a powerful spirit behind it. Um, so. I never give up, and it was actually a Kenyan friend of mine who's an activist who says activists have to be hopeful, and there's no other path really. Sure. Um, but there are there are many good things about the country. Um, so it's just a very very complex situation, given who's in power and given the international criminal court case. Um, and also, I should mention, and this links to the United States, the war on terror is something that concerns me very much. I think people remember what happened to the mall Westgate in Kenya not so long ago. Um, and then I don't know if they remember how bad the response was. What did happen to the mall Westgate? Uh, so it, horrendous. Um, so attackers came in. And they shot large numbers of people. This is in an upscale mall. There was a cooking competition with children. Many of them were killed. Um, this is about one year ago. Is that right? Even uh, this was November of last year, oh. if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, pretty recent. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so these were terrorists, we think. Um, and, uh, you know, um, probably probably al-Shabaab, which is an extremist group. But the response by the Kenyan police and then the Kenyan defense forces, which are their army, was so horrific. Um, and 
we still don't have the full truth on, on, on what actually happened. It was very suspicious, but I mean, we don't really have good information because the government hasn't been so open. But after many people were killed and injured, I think it took quite a while for the police to arrive, and it was a very special unit that had been trained on counterterrorism. Um, but then, while the police were there, the army came in and basically killed the head of the police force that was mm. apparently had gotten the terrorists, because there weren't that many in a corner. Um, and then there took days, and, and, and part of the building collapsed, and there was no clear, like, did they have bodies of the people who did this or not? Um, and so it became extremely murky. And now the army is very closely associated with the president. Um, the army was also caught on, on TV um, looting. And so there's some speculation that they went in and basically looted the place. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it was just it was just horrendous. But what was really frightening also, some people were realizing that the Kenyan government was really playing up like we're the ally in terror, uh, in t against terrorism. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting slip, an ally in terror. Um, we're, you know, an ally against terrorism. And the U.S. and the U.K. rely very heavily on Kenya as an ally. And in fact, the other important thing is Kenya went to war against Somalia. It's pretty common knowledge that the U.S. supported them in that. Um, so it was a bit of a proxy war in some ways. So this kind of means that the U.S. has now been very quiet about human rights violations in Kenya. And even today, I think it was today or, or yesterday, the deputy um, president said that the police will now have, you know, a, they can just shoot um, to kill against terrorists. But who becomes a terrorist? And now is this going to become the excuse to undermine all the reform that has been done? Mm. Um, so there's a, you know, there is this role that the United States plays that I think it's important to talk about mm -hmm. here. Um, and I personally am very fearful that we'll, you know, we'll stop supporting the human rights agenda in Kenya for these other strategic reasons and that the Kenyan government knows that and will play on that. And hence, Westgate seems really disturbing from many different mm -hmm, <laughs> angles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Anything else that we should broach? Um, uh, re relevant to your work, relevant to the NGO, relevant to the future status of, of Kenya or of IDPs in Kenya? Well, I think it's important to recognize how courageous they are being, um, many of them, both in terms of go some of them going home to their communities and reconciling. Um, and some who are willing now to start a case against the government, um, you know, they do want compensation, but they also want to make the country safer um, and also to make the country remember and to have a legislative record uh, of what's happened. Um, and so I think we really can't afford to ignore these courageous people. I think we need to think about how we can work with them more, even within the human rights community, mm -hmm. um, and that we need to see them as an example, too, in that reconciliation and these issues of violence are long-term. So for those 
who go in right after the crisis and then they start thinking about other things. Like right now, most of the focus in Kenya is on the devolved government that's supposed to happen, the devolution. And all of these other issues are now being swept under the carpet, in part possibly also because of the bullying and the of the government against <laughs> the embassies, but also because of the strategic interests. And I think that these displaced people deserve better and deserve a lot more support. And I think by focusing on them, we can keep our eye on some of the critical issues. So it's kind of a plea that I would have to keep, um, you know, keep these people have been so badly affected within the mobile, the processes for, for the kinds of change that needs to happen. Jackie Klopp, thank you for your work and your bravery and your commitment to this, this process. And um, thank you for joining us today. Uh, and hopefully we'll have you back again. It would be my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much.